The topic we have for tonight is reconciliation. Uh, this is part of the work of Christ. And uh, we're looking at a part uh, which is uh, named by a term which is not used an awful lot in the Holy Scriptures, reconciliation and reconciled. But where it is used is critically important. Uh, it is used by Paul. And it is sometimes uh, called a Pauline doctrine for that reason, since he is the only one using the uh, Greek word group that gets commonly translated as reconciliation. Um, but the concept uh, is not at all peculiar to Paul, even if the vocabulary uh, is unique to Paul. The English word, reconcile, and its derivatives, is used 16 times in 13 verses of the English standard version. More frequently uh, in the uh, King James Version uh, of the Bible, but uh, in the King James Version they uh, are using it uh, to translate uh, a variety uh, of Greek uh, and Hebrew words and uh, uh, we'll perhaps take uh, notice uh, of one of those which you've already uh, seen. But uh, first, in the New Testament, the uh, primary verb that is at work here, is a uh, verb alasso, uh, which comes in a variety of forms. That is to say, it's got a number of different prefixes on it, all of which shape its meaning just uh, a little bit. Uh, but the verb, and uh, this uh, will help uh, throw some light upon what the, uh, uh, the word is all about and what it's telling us about the work uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually built from a very common Greek word, alos, which means the other, an other person. Um, and uh, in its verb form, it, it, it has the idea of exchanging with another. Uh, that there's been some kind of substitution uh, going on, an exchange. Uh, but depending on the prefix, its uh, meaning gets a little bit uh, altered. As I said, the King James uses it a bit more frequently. Uh, it translates in the Old Testament, since you've already been down this road with uh, Dr. Davis, uh, what he called the K word uh, in Hebrew, uh, from which we get kipper, kofer, for atonement. Uh, it's uh, uh, in connection with that that the King James has also used it uh, in Hebrews 2.17. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him, that is Christ, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be the merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. Now, this would be a place where the ESV uses the word propitiation. Um, reconciliation is the result of propitiation. When God is propitiated, the thing that separated us from God has been removed. We'll talk more uh, about that in a minute. The result of that is then reconciliation. That's how the King James uh, translators, uh, I think, have arrived at the use of reconciliation in that place. Uh, but it's kind of jumping over uh, a step. Uh, it, because reconciliation... Uh, is a language that would have been used commonly uh, 
in connection with human relationships. The work of Christ is described by a variety of terms. Some of them come from the marketplace. Redemption, ransom, you know, he bought us, he redeemed us, uh, etc. Uh, some of it is legal terminology, justification. It relates to how we stand before God as he is a judge applying the law to us. <clears throat> Sometimes it's uh, military language, uh, the language uh, that some call the battlefield language, uh, subduing, conquering. Uh, but reconciliation involves the idea of a relationship being restored. It's not, I give you a, a quote on uh, the second page there uh, from uh, one who has uh, uh, written a very fine book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. This actually comes uh, uh, from a, a, a dictionary, the New Bible Dictionary. Uh, Leon Morris wrote uh, a classic work called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross where he does intensive word studies related to the work of Christ. He's got two chapters on propitiation. Uh, he's got one rather lengthy discussion uh, on reconciliation. And for those who would like to pursue it in terms of its vocabulary and its background use in both uh, Hebrew and Greek, I would recommend that you look at Leon Morris's book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, and the chapter on reconciliation. Uh, but what uh, Morris draws out there, this is uh, number six, uh, top of page uh, two, reconciliation properly applies not just to good relations in general, but to the doing away of an enmity, the bridging over of a quarrel. Uh, it implies that the parties being reconciled were formerly hostile to one another. So in reconciliation, it's not like us coming to know God uh, and now we have a relationship with God and things are fine and dandy as if we became fast friends. Reconciliation is dealing with a relationship where alienation had occurred, where there had been some breach that took place. Well, that breach was our sin. We had violated the law of God. We become an offense to his holiness and his wrath burns against us for that reason. John 3.36 tells us that he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains or abides on him. Romans 1 chapter 18 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. That is not a future threat. That is a description of the present state of things. Paul is not threatening judgment against sinners. He's pointing out that it is already upon them. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, against all ungodliness. That which was known about God, he said, is evident to them because God had made it evident to them. For ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being perceived through the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. 
And as Paul goes on in that uh, long description of the devolution of the human race, he explains that the punishment for sin initially, the way in which the wrath of God is first manifested, is that sinners are given over to their sins. We exchange the truth of God for the lie, the lie. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For that reason, God gives us over to depraved passions, to a depraved mind. We become futile in our thinking. We can't figure out what makes life work because we keep looking for ways to hold on to our sins and to hold back the consequences of our sins. That can't be done. But we continue to imagine that it can. And the punishment for sin is sin. People get what they want. So the wrath of God is already upon sinners. There's more to come, to be sure. There's a threat of eternal damnation and hell. But before we get that, we're already under the wrath of God. In reconciliation, as I said, it's not just the idea that you come to know God when you didn't know him. It's that you must be restored to a relationship that was broken and in which there was great offense so that you were now the object of God's wrath. For that reconciliation to take place, there'll have to be the removal of that which had caused the offense. Now we have that uh, even in human relationships. At the top page 2, I give you some examples where reconciliation uh, is used. 1 Samuel 29.4, uh, David, this is during his uh, period of time uh, as a refugee, uh, a fugitive from Saul, uh, and he has been uh, hired out by the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines are a little bit worried uh, about David aiding them in a major uh, campaign against uh, Saul because they imagine there'd be no better way for David to get himself back into good keeping with Saul than to uh, betray them in the battle. Uh, and so uh, they're worried that David will attempt to remove the offense that Saul has against him. Now, of course, David had not justly done any, I mean, he had not done anything that made Saul justly angry with him. It was Saul's jealousy uh, that brought that about. So that part of the relationship wouldn't stand uh, well as an analogy with Christ because David hadn't done anything wrong to Saul. But Saul was angry with him. Uh, and, but the Philistine uh, commanders don't understand that. And so they believe that if David were to do something like betray the Philistines, that that might get him back into favor with Saul. But the idea is there. You see, there's been something that has happened in the middle that has to be taken out of the way before a reconciliation can occur. Jesus uses the term in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, about brothers who are now litigants at court. Make peace. Well, there has to be reconciliation. That will not take place without the removal of a, whatever it was that had alienated the brothers to begin with. Um, Acts seven twenty six, referring uh, to the Old Testament, recounts how Moses intervened in a fight between two Israelites. Uh, and he sought to reconcile them. Well, we don't know what it was that actually alienated them. But Moses was intervening, seeking to bring 
parties who were at enmity back together. That's what we must get at in the work of Christ. There is enmity between God and the sinner. We must be brought back uh, uh, into favor with God by the removal of what had created the enmity. Now, there's four major passages in the New Testament that uh, we need to consider. The first is Romans chapter 5. I've given the verse to you there uh, on your handout. I'll uh, be referring to passages uh, or verses above that, which uh, are not here. But the, the key verses where the term gets used are verses 10 and 11. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more... Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Reconciliation was accomplished by Christ. It was, in fact, accomplished by the death of Jesus Christ. The way in which it accomplishes that reconciliation is that his death was a propitiation. You have already covered that. Paul says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. On the basis of what we previously said about the wrath, we need to understand that Paul is not simply saying that by our sin, we have rebelled against God, thus counting him as our enemy. What is at stake here is that God regards us as his enemies. His wrath had been aroused against us. There was enmity from God toward us. Now that will seem to be a rather confusing thing because after all, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So how do we explain God's love being present at the same time we speak about his enmity being present? Is it possible for God to be at enmity with us, for his wrath to be upon us, and yet for him to love us? If you thought theology was going to be easy, this is the time to give up that expectation which is doomed to disappointment. When you're dealing with the character of God, expect that things can get very deep. Why would you believe something that on the face of it looks to be incompatible, looks to be a paradox, possibly a contradiction, that God could at one time be at enmity with sinners and at that same time love those sinners? Why would anybody believe a thing like that? You would believe a thing like that because that's what God tells you is true. It's not because you can figure it out yourself. The reason you believe something like that is because you find both of them to be taught in the Bible. And if they're both taught in the Bible, they're both taught by God, and they're both true, whether you can figure it out or not. You've already been through probably a number of these things. Have you dealt with the doctrine of God's sovereignty and the freedom and responsibility of human beings? How in the world are you going to explain a thing like that in a way that dispels all objections, questions, and mystery. You would not be able to do so. 
I've taught theology for many a year. I have students wrestling with that continually. They wonder why I'm at such peace. It's not because I understand and therefore can explain the perfect intersection of these things. But I've been around here long enough to know that if you look in your Bible, you'll find them both. They're both clearly taught. And whether you can figure out how they can fit together, believe God can do it. If you would believe the testimony of men on things where you can't figure it out yourself and you take the expert's opinion. You know, I went to my doctor once and he had done all the blood tests and this, that, and the other and so on. And uh, he told me what the risk factors were and uh, whatnot. Uh, and he said, so what would you like to do? I said, what would I like to do? I said, I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do. I said, I don't have any idea what the best thing is for this. That's why I come to you. Uh, I don't have any clue. I said, if you want me to take that pill, I'll take that pill. You think I'm going to go look at the internet and try to figure out whether you're right on this? I said, no. I came here upon a recommendation of somebody I trust that you're a good doctor. If you tell me I need to take this pill, I'm going to take that pill. You know, my wife would love to sit there and talk about all the ramifications of this, that, and the other. And, and we at one time had a doctor that would sit and talk to you for ages. She just loved him. I didn't go in there to talk. What is it? Tell me what I do. I go out the door and I do it. Uh, I'm still taking that pill to this day. Uh, you know, I, I'd had another doctor who told me, uh, uh, well, you might have to have surgery on that someday. Uh, now, that was just uh, my internist, and he was telling me a problem. He said, you might have to have that. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, during the year that I had a sabbatical uh, from the church, uh, back in the year 2000, while I was off time, I thought, well, if this is the time to have surgery, I'll have surgery. So, I made an appointment to go to the specialist, the gastroenterologist, and he said, well, what are you, what are you doing here? And I said, well, my doctor said, dealing with this, maybe uh, I needed to look into surgery. He said, I bet a surgeon told you that. LAUGHTER I said, no, it's my internist. Uh, he said, well, you can just take a pill for that. And uh, I said, you can? You'll be all right? I said, yeah, I've been taking it for eight years. Uh, I said, well, how long are you going to be on it? He said, I'll probably be on it till I die. He said, <laughs> he said I'd, I'd rather do that and uh, go under the knife. I believe him. I, I just... Expect the doctor knows that. I try to find out if he's a good doctor. Admittedly, if he says something weird, I'll ask somebody else. I'll get a second opinion. But I go to people that I expect to know. When you come to the Bible, you're dealing with God. If God tells you that he rules over heaven and earth, and that doesn't at all diminish your responsibility for your sins, believe him. And in this case... We are dealing with the fact that, yes, the Bible does plainly declare the love of God for sinners. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to get into Ephesians in a little bit, talk about reconciliation, looks back before the foundation of the world and says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation, for in love he predestined us. That goes all the way back to eternity. But it's that same Bible that says... He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, having assured us in Ephesians chapter 1 of the love of God that is upon us from all eternity, he tells us 
that at one time we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and that we were children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. You can be an elect son of God, an elect daughter of God from all eternity, and yet until the day you are converted, you will live as a child of wrath, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Both are true. God in his love provides for our sin, but while we are in our sin, he hates our sin. And mind you, we, we can't soften the blow by just saying, well, uh, he doesn't really hate the sinner, he just hates the sin. There's a part of a truth there. But it's not abstract sins that go to hell. It's sinners that go to hell. It's not just some abstract quality in us that God hates. It's us in our sin that God hates. And yet it was while we were his enemies that Christ died for us. That we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That he who hated us in our sin also loved us with an everlasting love. And for that, he gave his son for us. We were enemies, reconciled to God by the death of his son. So Paul says, now, how much more? Now that you are reconciled. Now that what had offended God about you, what had aroused his wrath, provoked his enmity towards you, in Christ Jesus that has been removed. So if... In his love, while you were yet his enemy, he sent his son to die for you. Then Paul is saying, now how much more? Now that you have been reconciled, how much more will you be saved by his life? Romans 5 is really introducing a long section in Romans, running all the way to the end of chapter 8, dealing with the doctrine of assurance. He starts off, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The end of Romans chapter 8, he's telling telling us there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So he starts out telling us we have peace with God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We can even rejoice uh, in our tribulations because we know our tribulations are not going to separate us from God. And he'll come back to that theme at the end uh, of Romans. But the God who loved us and made provision for us was the God who counted us as his enemies while we were yet in our sins. What made us his enemies had to be removed. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, over on page 3 of your notes. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake, 
he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now here's another little paradox uh, that emerges in there. The Bible consistently represents God as the initiator of reconciliation. Reconciliation doesn't begin in us. Because when we rebelled against God, in our sin, we are at enmity with God. Paul describes the mind set on the flesh in Romans chapter 8 as being hostile to God. That mind does not subject itself to the law of God. Indeed, it is unable to do so. A sinner is a slave to sin. Now, he's a slave in the sense that he will never do other than sin. It's not that the slavery means he is constantly forced into sin against his will. Our problem is not that we are being forced against our will. It's that our will is tied to corrupt nature. We are doing what we want. We are as perfectly free in doing what we want as we were before we fell. But we are now corrupted beings by it. And we are then the slaves to our own corruption. It's not somebody else that's making us sin. It's our own hearts that have been corrupted by this. Now, uh, my seminary students wrestle with this. Paul is calling upon people to be reconciled to God. He's pleading with them. He's urging them. Elsewhere, we could say it's really the same thing. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. There's a duty laid upon people. There's a commandment given to people. And yet the Bible also says there's no way in the world people are going to obey that command unless their hearts have been changed because they are slaves of sin. They cannot act contrary to their own will. They cannot save themselves. And people say, you know, look, if God is commanding you to repent, the only way it would make sense is that you had the ability to repent. If you don't have the ability to repent, then God is clearly wasting his breath. He is himself speaking nonsense. Responsibility implies ability. If you are responsible to repent, then you must have the ability to repent. If you don't have the ability to repent, God couldn't hold you responsible for repenting. And there seems to be a plausibility about that. I mean, after all, if God had commanded me to fly, and I don't mean get on an airplane, I mean just flap my arms and fly up in the air. If God had commanded me to fly and he didn't make me with the ability to fly, then for God to judge me for not obeying his command would be monstrous. If he didn't give me the ability to fly, he can't hold me responsible for flying. Is that what we're talking about? No, that's not what we're talking about. Because the bondage of our sin was the result of our own choice. He didn't make us sinful. That happened by our choice. Our problem is this, that though we were created with the ability to love and obey God, 
When we exercised our ability not to love and obey God, as Adam clearly had, Adam was made, as Augustine said, with the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. How do you know he had the ability to sin? Well, because he did. There's nothing like actuality to prove possibility. (laughs) Now that he has, however, he lost his ability not to sin. It'd be like me if I went down the street here and robbed Bank of America. And in the course of my getaway, or assuming I was on the run for several months, if I lost the money and I were apprehended, I would be justly held responsible to return to Bank of America all the money that I took. Though, because of my foolishness, I don't have the ability to pay the money. I'm still responsible. Uh, Take uh, another example. If uh, Neil and I had indeed uh, taken that marijuana cigarette uh, at graduation, we didn't. We really didn't. (laughs) But if we had, chances are we would not have been able to operate an automobile safely under that condition. If we had gotten ourselves intoxicated, uh, whether through marijuana or something else, we wouldn't be able to safely drive an automobile. Are we responsible for safely operating an automobile? Would we be held responsible for any damage that was caused for an irresponsible operation of an automobile? Yes, indeed. But everybody knows a drunk man can't safely operate an automobile. It's impossible for a person who is well intoxicated to operate an automobile safely. Why in the world would we hold him responsible for doing something he plainly cannot do? Because he is responsible for the disability under which he now labors. And that's where we are in our sin. We are responsibility. We are responsible for the disability we now have. So, we can be commanded to repent. We can be called upon to be reconciled. But the initiation for it must always come from God. Because in the corruption of our nature, it will never be appealing to us to exercise our nature, to exercise our will, excuse me, in repentance and faith. Before our power of choosing will be exercised in that direction, our hearts will have to be made new so that we would desire such a direction. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is not a reconciliation where warring parties agree to meet in the middle. This is a reconciliation that God must initiate and God must accomplish. He must so change us that we do come. Uh, I call this the royal canounted, uh, the royal mounted Canadian, no, the royal Canadian mounted police view of theology. Why do I call it that? Well, you know what they say about the mountains. What? They always get their man. God always gets his man and he always gets his woman. When he comes and changes your heart, your heart is indeed changed. That's exactly why you pray 
for the salvation of people. Prayer assumes a sovereign God. Nobody prays to a God who's done all that can be done. You pray to God for the salvation of lost loved ones, relatives, friends, co-workers, etc., because you know deep down in your soul that God has the power to do so. That's the whole premise of your prayer, that God has that power. And God must exercise that power if there's going to be reconciliation. It must come from him. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And then uh, we find that he has now entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. We go out in the world preaching the gospel. Now that we have received the reconciliation, we go out to offer this uh, to others. God has entrusted this message to us. But as Paul said in Romans chapter 5, we have received the reconciliation. We didn't achieve it. God initiates it and God completes it. Now in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, I won't read all of that. Uh, you see in bold print there in the middle of the paragraph where the word reconcile uh, pops up. Uh, that he might create in himself, Christ, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us, the us here is Jew and Gentile, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. This passage tells us that at one time we were far off from God. When we were far off from God, this is not merely a geographical uh, term. This is a, a, a term that talks about a spiritual deprivation. Because the result of being far off for the Gentiles was that they were without God and without hope in the world. Now this goes back to that bondage in which we're in. Unless God comes with the message, and unless God comes to empower us to respond to the message, there is no hope. But God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And now that he has, it's not only that there is reconciliation between a sinner and God, but God brings that sinner into relationship with the other sinners who have been reconciled. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul is thinking especially about how the Jews who had been the one nation on the face of the earth who had received the gospel message now have God giving that message to all the nations of the world and what had earlier divided them no longer divides them and they are made as one people in God. Let me uh, rush to Colossians 1.19. I'll, I'll give you a chance uh, to ask some questions. Something has happened in the Greek text when we move into Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, what has happened is that uh, Paul has used another form uh, of, the, uh, of the verb katalasso, which had been used in Romans 5 uh, and in 2 Corinthians. 
Uh, he now uses a form of the word that has never appeared in the history of Greek literature until Paul. Apo katalosa. Did he make it up? Well, he may have made it up. Uh, all the scholars know is you can't find it before Paul. Uh, and it doesn't ever catch on in secular Greek literature outside of Christian literature. Later, Christian theologians will use it because they find it in Paul. But Paul might have made it up. And the only reason I say might is because we don't know. It's just that this is the first time uh, it came up. Paul might have heard it uh, at some other meeting. Uh, but we don't have any record of that. This is the first time it appears in Greek literature. Now, if we think that Paul did make it up, or that he's now using it for the first time. Why? Well, I think if we look at both Ephesians and Colossians, it may be that Paul is trying to stress at this point that the reconciliation is far more than just your individual reconciliation to God. Romans chapter 5, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God to the death of his son. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, this message of reconciliation came to us. We've been given a message. But in Ephesians, he wants to talk about the reconciliation between not only the sinner and God, but between the Jew and the Gentile. And in Colossians, he actually makes an astounding comment that in Christ, all things have been reconciled to God. Things that are in heaven as well as things that are upon the earth. Well, are we to think that the heavens themselves and the earth have somehow been alienated from God? That there has to be something removed to bring God and his creation back together? Well, in a sense, yes. Now, first, in a sense, no. When Psalm 19 tells you that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork, day to day pours forth speech, night to night declares knowledge, it's telling you that the created universe reveals to you the glory of God. The whole created universe reveals the glory of God. Romans 8, one, uh, I mean Romans 1, 18 and following that we were talking in terms of sin, ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. So the created universe has been the vehicle through which God is making himself known. How is it alienated? Well, in this sense, the whole created universe is there for us, believe it or not. We're the pinnacle of his work in creation. It's all out there for us. When we sinned, a curse fell upon it. And so now, if you grow roses, it will definitely be through hard toil and labor. Because if you just put in the bushes and walk away, weeds will grow, bugs will come, mildew will grow on the plants, etc. If you're going to grow anything that's really pretty or really good, you will work hard in it. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the whole creation is now groaning and it's longing to enter in to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation is out there aching for this reconciliation.
Christ, it is achieved. Not only are we made new creations, but the creation itself becomes new. New heavens, new earth. I sometimes get asked as a theologian, will there be dogs in heaven? Well, for some people, that's a very important question. I say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't take that on straight up. Uh, I think there's good reasons to be hopeful. Uh, First of all, God saw fit to put animals in the first creation. They served his purpose and his glory. I wouldn't know why they'd be missing. Uh, Secondly, Paul says the whole creation is groaning, so dogs are groaning too. They're longing to enter into the glory of the freedom. You know, to hear Derek talk, his, his first dog is probably... Among the saved. <laughs> the verdict's still out on the second, from what I hear. <laughs> the verdict's still out on the second. But on that basis, I expect that the new heavens and the new earth are going to be very much like this one, except that everything of the curse will be gone. And everything will be just the way it ought to be. So will there be dogs in heaven? Yeah, I think there'll be dogs in heaven. Will your dog be in heaven? I don't know about that. Uh, (laughs) But the whole creation will be renewed. Christ's work on the cross accomplished that too. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself. The doctrine of reconciliation presupposes there was some need out there. There is something that had separated us from God. That something arouses God's enmity and wrath. Before there can be reconciliation, that has to be removed. It was removed in Christ as he went to the cross, bearing the wrath that was aroused against you. For every sin that you and I have committed, Christ suffered for it on the cross. For there would be no redemption at the compromise of the justice of God. Every sin that is committed in the world will receive its just punishment, either in Christ or in the sinner. We were at enmity with God, and therefore Christ had to bear that enmity. That's when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he has. He has now put aside the enmity. We who are enemies have now been reconciled to God through the death of his son. Now that we are reconciled, you can be sure God has no intent to waste what it cost him to buy you back from your sin. He does not walk away from such an investment. He will keep us to everlasting life. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. And though we were indeed sinners deserving of the full wrath of God, you have been pleased to spend that wrath upon your Son rather than upon us. And Lord, we marvel that there could be such a love as this. But we have received it in Jesus Christ. 
And we love you for it. And we pray that henceforth we may be able to live to the honor and glory of your name. So having bought us and made us your own, work in us, that more and more we may die to sin and live to righteousness, to the honor and glory of your name, for we ask it through Christ our Savior. Amen.